Do you know a woman who is driving positive change, growth, or innovation in her organization or community? The second annual Success Women of Influence Awards are underway. So whether a friend, a family member, or peer, give the recognition she deserves. The Success Women of Influence Awards honor, celebrate, and empower the extraordinary women whose contributions have impacted their industries and their communities, and the personal and professional lives of those in their world. Visit success.com slash W-O-I to nominate the women of influence in your life today. If you're looking for success, it's in the details. Small hinges move big doors. And now your host, Karen Allen. Hello, beautiful friend, and welcome back to In the Details. I'm your host, Karen Allen, and today we're back with Caroline Miller, who's a grit and goals expert. If you haven't heard our first conversation, you need to go check out that episode. (laughs) Go back, check it out, take a listen. And not that you have to listen to that as a precursor to this one, but I do feel like you're going to get so much of Caroline's foundation and you'll understand, you know, how she found her way into this world of positive psychology. She also, of course, gives excellent tips on how you can thrive. So definitely check it out. And as a a quick reminder, positive psychology, if this is a new term for you, it is the study of how humans flourish. And that is something that pulled me right in because I knew that as I was rewiring my mindset, I was doing it with intentionality. I was thinking about the kind of character strengths that I wanted to make sure I was building up. I was thinking about my environment. You know, one of the little things I did was uh, when I started this personal growth journey was I stopped watching the news so much and I stopped listening to all that stuff. I I was so protective of my environment because I recognized that all of those different things in our environment, they're either going to help us or they're going to hinder our growth. So today we're going to dive into the community aspect of how we can all thrive and flourish together. So let's get in the details with Caroline. Caroline, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me back. Yes, absolutely. Well, I love when we can dive in even deeper with our guests. And you mentioned in our first conversation how community plays such an important role in in our ability to thrive and overcome the challenges in our life. And I think we all, you know, kind of know that on a basic level, but let's start here. Can you tell us how community ties into positive psychology and how you started this exploration of its importance and significance? Yes. Good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the more recent part of my life, which is how does community connect with positive psychology? Then I'll go back because now I have the language and the research to understand why it healed me. So in positive psychology, we often talk about the fact that the whole field, which is not happyology, it's flourishing, as you said, boils down to three words. And those three words are other people matter. And we find when we look at the happiest of people across all cultures, all age groups, Without any exception, they value and tend to and cultivate the right relationships in their lives. They are interacting with other people in ways where they're giving, not just taking. And um, they're part of an organized effort to be their best selves and to bring peace, healing, joy, love, awe, pride, et cetera, to other people too. And as we age, it becomes even more important to bring more to the table than we take to the table. We become generative givers. So, and then, you know, it's it's been in the news about this loneliness epidemic we're in the middle of and how it's more toxic 
than even smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. I was just reading this morning, I think it's in Dutch supermarkets, they've started this initiative that's going wild where older seniors, lonely older seniors, possibly who are widows or widowers, there's now a checkout line at the supermarket where people, it's built in that you can stop and talk to the cashier for as long as you want. So the interaction, the conversation, the connection, especially when eyes meet eyes, is really what positive psychology has hammered into all of us who are practitioners um, and appliers of the research. I got into it through, you know, hitting my last bottom with my eating disorder. So I grew up in Washington, D.C., and it was really dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest, prep school, girls' prep school, competitive swimming, Olympic gold medal um, athletes as, you know, great uncles of mine. And basically it was whoever finishes first wins and it doesn't matter who's second, third, or even who else is in the race. When I hit my last bottom after seven years of bulimia, I found myself in 12-step rooms with recovering alcoholics, bulimics, et cetera. And that was where I learned that you can't keep what you don't give away and that we get better in community and thrive in community. So that lesson became hardwired into my consciousness in my early 20s. And that's when it became more than just research to me. It was reality. It worked. And now, in hindsight, I have the research to apply to understand why I got better and stayed better. Absolutely. So let's talk a little more about what community can do. And, you know, again, you were coming from a place where you, as you mentioned, were at rock bottom. So you were looking for healing and growth. Mm-hmm. I kind of think of those as separate, but we'll we'll count them as one for the sake of yeah. this conversation. But how did you learn that? I mean, very intricately and personally, that community was going to help you to heal and to grow and to become better. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I, th- if I thought I was looking for anything in specific other than I didn't want to die. And I knew that there was nothing available for bulimics in the early 80s. It was a death sentence to have that eating disorder. So I simply wanted to have hope. Now, what else that hope came along with, I didn't know. But I started hearing stories of people who had gotten better. And that gave me hope. And then there's a sponsor program. And, you know, when you think about in really thriving workplaces or in thriving communities, big brothers, big sisters, sponsors in AA, there's always somebody whose hand comes out to you to grab you. And that's where I learned that people were waiting to grab me, but that the expectation was I was going to grab them too. And so the laughter and the healing and the community and the feeling that I'm in the right place at the right time in my life all is what led me to see not only am I hopeful, I'm getting better and I'm helping other people. And this is a virtuous circle. And then positive psychology explained it all to me about 20 years later. (laughs) So it's interesting. You found that connection, that love, that support from these different groups. I'm assuming then you didn't have this kind of support at home and right in, in that moment right there, you know, what I'm, what I'm also trying to figure out for our listeners. And I'd love for you to explain this is sometimes we default to the people who are closest to us need to be the ones who support us. Right. It sounds like maybe that wasn't the case for you. 
It was not the case. My mother uh, was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder later in life, which helped me to understand why, if it was good for me, it was bad for her. She was not my friend. She was more of an unconscious enemy, unfortunately. It took me a long time to understand that. So I always knew I did not have a soft place to fall at home. I had a magnificent grandmother. And what was interesting when I wrote the book, Getting Grit, uh, which was about how anyone could cultivate grit. Most people cited a grandmother as their role model for grit and somebody who had connected with them and believed in them. And that was the case for me. So, no, I did not have that community of support in my own home. A, ther- a very brilliant therapist said to me, blood is not thicker than water. I'm going to disabuse you of that one right away. And so I didn't. And I had to have a community and a family of choice as I got older And I have passed that message along to the recovery community as well, because I think there is this myth that, and it's unfortunate, I want everyone to come from a home where they believe in you and your potential, but there's there's a myth that a mother is always going to be supportive of her daughter. I am of my mother, I mean, my daughter. I can't imagine not thinking that she's the greatest thing in the world and being behind her, no matter whether she wants to play tiddlywinks or be a lawyer, it doesn't matter. It's her. It's my daughter. She's the best. But it led me into the field of looking at communities of women. I had such a tough experience with my mother that I decided later in life to take a very hard look at mean girls and what are we doing to each other when there's this myth of sisterhood on top of the myth of all mothers love their all their children. And so I think I came at it from a hardwired, deep-rooted hole in my heart and really wanted to figure out what can I do to help assuage the loneliness and sadness that so many women carry with them Mm. simply because they were not born to the right mother at the right time or they're in a community where you can't find a woman who will lead the team in clearing the benches for you when you need support men Mm. get it just like from birth in sports everywhere else so i wanted to do something about that and that became my eighth book yeah Mm. There's something right there in in your response that I think often, and I'm I'm learning about this more in my adult life too, is missed and, or just not talked about. And it is that piece about not all mothers have the nurturing trait. I've I'm very grateful. I do have a mom who she is amazing. I mean, listen, we all have our quirks as humans, but as a mom, she is absolutely fantastic. I have my wow. own too. Lucky um, you. And honestly, it, again, in my adult life is when I, I started to really recognize I hit the family lottery in so many different ways, but I only recognize that because I saw these instances where I had female friends who either they did have a mother who wanted to love them, but maybe didn't have all the other tools or skills. Maybe they had their own trauma and you know things that they were working through so they they weren't able to fulfill all of the other nurturing aspects i've also mm-hmm. seen friends who they didn't have good relationship with their mom because i mean the reality is the mom really didn't want to be a mom right and so there're these different but for some reason we have this idea that all mothers are loving and supportive and they hold you close to their bosom and they tickle you and they don't. And it's like, no, it's not always like that. So just want to hold space, you know, and, and appreciate the fact that you looked at something that I'm sure was very hard to with an effort 
to shine light on this conversation so that we can educate one another. Yeah. And so we can also, and this is what it goes back to community, support one another. Because yeah. if you don't have that support at home, whether it's through a parent, whether it's through even maybe your friend circle needs to change because now you're in a different you know place as far as healing and growth, yeah. that's okay too. So as you were navigating this, what are some of those things that you started to notice either in your own relationship or as you were looking at other relationships between women that you think mm -hmm. it's important to share here? Oh, okay. So there were a lot of aha moments and wake up calls as I went through the research on relationships and community and particularly Shelley Gable's research at the University of California, Santa Barbara, which I've included in all of my books, Creating Your Best Life, Getting Grit, Hashtag I Have Your Back, I'm Positively Caroline, because it, it to me was like, you know, the blinders come off, the windows go up, you suddenly see something clearly, and that is that when you share your good news with somebody else or a big idea uh, of yours, particularly as a woman, how do others around you respond? Do they respond with curiosity and enthusiasm? Do they respond by changing the subject? Do they respond with a negative comment, which is a, you know considered in the destructive quadrant? There, there are four ways to respond. There's only one right way, and I'll focus on the one right way, and that is the curiosity and enthusiasm. It's called active constructive responding. And I can't tell you how many people hear that and just think, oh my God, not only do I not always do that when I hear good news, I have a twinge of envy or, you know, it calls me out or it makes me feel like I'm not growing or whatever. People suddenly realize that someone very close to them, it could be a cousin, a best friend, a mother, a, a grandmother, somebody is not behind you when you, when you surface a big private dream or something you really want to go after. And Shelley Gable's research is very powerful in that she says that the research shows that if there is a first responder, a first person who has the privilege of being in your tight circle and hearing your dreamer goal and does not respond with active, constructive, you know, curiosity, enthusiasm, you're likely to abandon that goal. You're likely to code it as, as something that's bad. Now think about that when we think about where women are in the world right now with gender equity, pay scales, you know, the ability to make money and hold on to money, reproductive rights. When you think about all those things and you think about, wow, the first person I share my goals with has the power to make me let that goal just drop away and play small in life, makes you realize how big these little micro moments and conversations with people really are. These are not random one-offs. You are changing the course of your life mm. with every conversation you have every day. Mm. That is powerful. I mean, when you were talking, I felt that in my gut, Caroline. I hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as I am. But before we dive deeper, we're going to hear from one of our partners, and then we'll pick right back up where we left off. Are you ready to supercharge your life and get access to more opportunities than you've ever dreamed of? Then join me, James Whitaker, in the Win The Day Accelerator. Presented by Success, this entire eight-part program has been created to help you activate your winning life once and for all. You'll gain clarity on your goals and purpose. You'll learn how to quickly overcome challenges and you'll get proven tips and frameworks that will deliver you big results fast in all areas of your life. So if you're ready to win, join me in the Win The Day Accelerator. To sign up, visit success.com slash WTD. I was thinking about this 
this journey of being an entrepreneur mm. and different people, if I would share things with, as you said, even if I just shared an idea and I'm looking to see who's still around me. And yeah, you're right. It's the people who supported me. It's the people who said no. And maybe, maybe there was someone who's around me who was not supportive, but now I just don't share things with them anymore. I, and actually that, that, that brings up a question when you, when you recognize maybe, maybe a listener tests this out, right? They have an yeah. idea. They want to, they want to see who, who really supports them and loves them. Mm -hmm. So they start to ask this uh, question or share good news with people around them. And then if they do feel, and they hear that someone is not responding with curiosity and enthusiasm, mm -hmm. what do they do in that moment? Or, and no, no, no. And <laughs> What do they do with that in that moment? And what should they do to navigate that relationship? Good questions. In that moment, I would like people, and this does apply to men and women, but we're talking about women in this instance, to stop oversharing, stop being vulnerable, stop putting the shield down and thinking you're safe. It's these micro moments and this lack of psychological safety. We hear about this at work. But it's true in life. Do you have psychological safety in your conversations? If you do not, put the shield up. You don't have to withdraw completely, but you you do have to guard yourself. Shelly Gable talks about, you know, on the smoke alarms, hit the red button with these trial balloon statements and see what happens. So you can just use it as a check. Going forward, just remember, everyone who's in that first circle, think of it as LinkedIn, your first level, they are privileged to be in your life. They are privileged to be in your life, but not everyone who's in your life should be privileged to your deepest fears, dreams, secrets, aspirations, goals. And so manage that relationship for what it is. Maya Angelou said it best. If someone tells you who they are, believe them. So then begin to create that circle of people who support you. I'll finish with one quick story. Dara Torres, the um, the American swimmer who got second in the, I think, 2008 Olympics in the 50-meter freestyle, she thought she could win a gold medal in the Olympics at the age of 40. And anybody who didn't believe in her was not permitted to be anywhere in her environment in the last two years before the Olympics. And that included her father, who thought that she should just be making babies. And so you find that elite athletes, they know this instinctively. If you're a naysayer, if you're not supportive, they know their window of time to be everything they want to be is so small. They instinctively figure out who are the haters, who are the negative people, get out mm -hmm. or put a container around them and manage the time and energy that goes in that direction. Mm, manage the time and energy that goes in that direction because that is under your control. Yes, a that lot of is. times we focus on things that are out of our control, including other people and how they're treating us. But what you just said there is an mm -hmm. action step someone can take that is with, within their control, as opposed to giving their energy to someone else and what they're saying and what they're doing, which they cannot. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's like you were saying to me right before uh, we started filming that you went on a news fast. And I think that's what Dr. Andrew, well, I mean, there, there are times we know, don't let that negativity in. We're trying mm -hmm. to do something important and big. And so what does it mean to manage um, a difficult relationship? It means that you don't always pick up the phone out of obligation. Maybe you don't read the emails that mm -hmm. someone's sending you because you know there's always a downer aspect. There was a point where I was writing Creating Your Best Life. I was being barraged with negativity from a man, and I would just forward, auto-forward 
every one of those emails to one of my colleagues, she would scan them and tell me if there was anything I had to know, because I knew that I couldn't have that negativity, you know, banging around in my head. So you manage difficult relationships, whether it's verbal, whether it's somebody you see, whether it's an email you're reading, but know that those inputs come from everywhere and you can't be asleep at the wheel in your own life about what's entering your presence. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. Okay. So that's talking from more of a general standpoint of like just taking inventory on who has the most access to you. And, and I love how you said, Hey, listen, if they don't respond in this way, that is a really good warning sign, a, a check engine light, if you will, that you are not in a psychologically safe space. Right. And we, and that we all deserve that. We all deserve that. But let's talk more specifically about sisterhood and how women connect with each other. Because you mentioned earlier that you started to unpack this more because of your relationship with your mom. It's not just through mother-daughter relationship that we can kind of see a breakdown of women supporting women. I mean, we do see that in the world around us. And I will say, I, very grateful, like my close girlfriends are, they are absolutely through thick and thin. Well, now the people who I'll say the people who are We're there now stage of life. Right, 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 right. But I have absolutely gone through different stories of friendships or just people, you know, women that I was around. And I knew that there was this like visceral undertone. Then there were times where I didn't know, but it showed later. And I'm like, why would we do that to one another? I don't understand. Yeah. That's not that's so let's talk a little bit about that. Why do you think there is this? And listen, we know this happens probably, you know, across genders, right? Men being mean to women, women being mean to all that. But I'm fascinated about this space because there is this idea that no, women stick together. We support one another. There is this very rich sisterhood. But I do have those experiences where I'm like, nah, not all women, not all women believe the same thing. So let's, let's talk about what you found in that. So I determined that I was not going to speak publicly about this until I'd looked at all the research. So I spent four years reading everything I could on women hurting women. The the iconic book for me was Phyllis Chesler's book called Woman's Inhumanity to Woman, a research psychologist who is brilliant, who really spent 20 years looking at this. But I looked at Alice Egley at Northwestern University. I looked at Deborah Tannen and language. I looked at everything. And what I came up with is there are a number of reasons why we as women do not always support other women. There is this myth of a sisterhood that's all encompassing when times are good and times are bad. The truth is that, yes, there's a sisterhood, but more often what we do is we show up to tend and befriend. This research came out of the UCLA nurses study. And what they found is that women are fantastic when another woman is hurting, when she needs a casserole brigade, when uh, a relationship breaks up, when, but, but when she's not well, when she just had a child, for example, and needs grooming, what we know is that women thrive on coming together to tend and befriend each other because oxytocin is released. Mm-hmm. And so chemically, women need women. What I saw, though, was the opposite side. What I saw was that there was not a believe and achieve reaction. So we grow up hearing about girls, women take care of women, girls have best friends, boys are competitive, boys have goals, they're goal-directed. So we grow up in this biosocial theory research showing that we grow up with the messages, unconscious and conscious, that women do not 
you know, be, they're not aggressive. They don't go after things. They support each other. However, however, little girls become so verbally aggressive that they realize the only place they can compete with each other is verbally. Boys do it physically, girls do it verbally. This is why as you grow up, one of the things you find, and this is based on scarcity theory, the hard wiring that women will kill other women in primate societies who could be vying with them for the man in the troop, the man in the gorilla troop. So there's a hardwired piece to this. But what one of the things we find is that women learn that the way to really hurt another woman is to go silent in the face of her success, to shun her to throw her out of the tribe, to not hit like on LinkedIn when she says she just gave a speech and got a standing ovation, that she just got a promotion, that she started her own business. And again, this is research that's out there. The most prominent thing that women do to other women in the workplace is go silent or undermine them when they dare to be goal-directed, ambitious, proud, etc., for all of the reasons and more, there's linguistic reasons, there's re- religious reasons, there's all kinds of underlying reasons why and research supporting why women do not support each other. And so there, it comes at us from many areas, many levels, many stories. I'll say one more thing about this. We all have grown up. I'm sure you heard it. I heard it. That's just how girls are. They can't fight. They're mean girls. It's a thing. And we grow up believing that this is just how girls are. So the expectation, expectancy theory, is that we believe that this is the natural order of things. Mm. And because of that, we allow this to go on instead of fighting against it and displaying behavior to show the next generation of young girls that we can do something I call amplship, amplify and support the good news and successes of other women in front of witnesses. You cannot say you mentor and sponsor and ally other women and, and get away with it. Well, most many do, because those three terms do not include the important theme that it has to be done with witnesses. So there are too many women who say they're mentoring women in companies and not actually doing it. And there's research that I was sent by Adam Grant and Angela Duckworth saying they couldn't find the mentees, but they sure found women who said they were mentors. Mm. And so we have to demonstrate behavior where you do it, I do it, where another woman comes along who's accomplished and we lean in and support her instead of lean away and degrade her because of whatever those reasons are. Mm -hmm. It made me think of, as you were just explaining, you know, how far this goes back, you know, into primate era. And I was thinking about Dr. Rebecca Heiss, who I had on the show. She studies our ancestral brain and, Mm -hmm. and helps us to understand some behaviors that are just instinctual and, Mm -hmm. and have not, they are not as sophisticated, right. As where we are today, because back in the day with scarcity being real on who's going to eat what or yeah. are we going to eat today right kinds of that still plays out in other areas where we're living right now in a world where everything is abundant, abundant. right it is right. abundant right right however we still have that ancestral part of our brain that tells us there's not enough for everyone to eat so as i'm hearing you mention this or unpack this it, it what i'm hearing is from this sisterhood side it's mm-hmm. still the same thing as far as scarcity, which interestingly enough, 
we already do enough as women and we're reversing this within ourselves we do so much unnecessarily to dim our light to not oh go god to, right right oh yeah because this tall poppy syndrome is alive and well if you do have a bright light there's research on this the mm -hmm. first people to cut you down are friends and other women people who are close yep 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 and and again we're doing this to ourselves. we're saying oh i don't want it this is me i'm literally talking about i don't want to shine too bright i don't do too much i don't want to be so all of that yep. now as i've gone through my healing and my growth i recognize who yep. even laid that in my mind okay part of it is the ancestral part of the brain right so in this space of sisterhood yep. we have to start to rewire that mindset exactly not only how we see ourselves but how we are treating others exactly this is this is learned behavior right since we're, we're both looking at primates and primatologists have been listening to francis van der waal um, from the netherlands about this and what's so fascinating is he says that mothering is learned chimps learn how to mother by looking at females who are nursing baby chimps mm -hmm. and so i was listening thinking if mothering because it's this myth that mothering is instinctive it's not we already covered that earlier today it's mm -hmm. not not all mothers know what to do or demonstrate what to do in a good way and so we this is learnable behavior and we must learn it and i and i believe that part of the reason we haven't learned it is because we have accepted this mean girl idea and we've turned it into a culture we've turned it into shows called mean girls we've got the real housewives of fill in the blank where the entire theme is women fighting with each other about clothes about friends about superficial things but not supporting each other and there's not even a word in the english language that means happiness for her happiness and when a word doesn't exist in a language the behavior often doesn't exist either. And so I, I I went for 15 years and looked for the opposite of the word schadenfreude in any language. Schadenfreude is happiness that someone else is miserable. And finally, in 2019, in Australia, I stumbled into a room where some Israeli researchers were uh, presenting on something linguistically. And I raised my hand at the end. And I was like, I've been looking for 15 years for, is there a word that's the opposite of schadenfreude? And this woman said, oh, there is. It's it's fear gun. It's I think it's a Yiddish word that's considered untranslatable. And I find that fascinating because if the word fear gun is that rare and it means happiness because somebody else has gotten something good mm. and that we are celebrating that, then I thought I'll make up a word. And it became ampliship, amplifying other women's successes with witnesses. So anyway, I think it became a culture. I think we've bought into it. I think we have made it um, just kind of a trope. Uh, I also would like to add, I think there are systems in place that we know are starting to be unraveled, but systems in place where women cannot shine bright, cannot lead, cannot hit all of their goals, right? But as we are unraveling even those systems, yeah. we also have to combat the behavior. And what I'm hearing you yeah. say is being an ally isn't enough you have to amplify other yes. people's work and their goodness and that is how we start to undo this kind of ancestral thinking and start to build strong sisterhood 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got to stop being astonished when a woman is happy for another woman. Every time I think Taylor Swift says something nice about another singer, it becomes like international news. Like what? What happened? Mm-hmm. The the thing everybody should go look up is the 2019 Miss Universe pageant at the very end when they announce the winner, because this is exactly what I'm talking about. It's, you know, he announces the winner is Miss Jamaica. And then you see this gorgeous, tall woman just running in circles circles with this green, you know, sequin gown, just, you know, waving her hands and like, oh my God. And you'd think she was the winner. It was because she was so happy that her friend, Miss Jamaica, had won. She was like the first runner up. <laughs> and and the, the, the blogosphere just went crazy and said, where do you find women like this? Mm. Who are these people? Mm. What are they doing? It's like they were a cultural like anthropological exhibit of just bizarre human beings. Mm. Every time this happens, we act like it's not a norm because it's not. We need to make it a norm so that it stops being commentary like that. So what do you think about creating these different social groups or even masterminds? And and what is that? How can that either help or how can that hurt? What do we look out for? Is there anything that we should be conscious of as we enter masterminds? Because it feels like that would be a good intimate space to find people who are like-minded. One of the things that I often hear is that they enter a woman's circle group, a lean-in group, a chief, whatever, and they're assigned to groups of women. The problem is you don't know whether or not those women are active, constructive responders. I, I do believe women should strategically form mastermind groups where there's a known quality that's coming into the groups because it does need to be safe. If you don't know who these people are, many women play smaller until they find out. So I don't think it's enough to be assigned to a group. I think it's important to uh, take control and create your own group. Mm. And also take some time, I guess, to figure out if you're in the right group. Like just because you're put in a group doesn't mean you have to stay there. That's Exactly. I, I call them mastermind groups. I wrote a book about how to form them. So I guess I should just say that. That's a download book available on my website. But I do think that that's the last missing piece is it's not enough to have a good sisterhood. How do you create or find enough people to be in a mastermind group so that you have that monthly, usually monthly support, whether it's virtual or in person, because it makes all the difference. Well, I'm telling you, this conversation is making me send out loving vibes to all of my girlfriends who I know are a part of my circle because we have done this, cheering each other on, getting each other, you know, job opportunities, sharing the wins, like really loving on each other, holding space for one another helping the other person grow. I mean, I'm thinking about these sacred relationships that I have with the closest women in my life and everything that you're saying that we need to do in order to heal sisterhood is something that I'm experiencing firsthand, but it Mm. took me decades to get to this point of clarity of, of even finding women who are aligned in that space, that heart space of saying, I can love myself fully. And I can also love you. Not that one comes over the other, but that we can do this together. And, and that right there is special. I mean, I, I, knew it. I started to feel it. But now that I'm hearing how you've been able to uncover a lot of things in this research that I think people aren't talking about yet, we know Mm. yet we've experienced. And Mm -hmm. the more we have these conversations about wonderful areas of improvement, opportunities to grow, 
the more we can be intentional about how we're showing up in the world, supporting one another. And I really hope that this conversation reaches every woman who's listening in a way where she thinks about how am I creating a psychologically safe space for the women who are around me in my circle? And how can I amplify their good work? Those are the two takeaways that I hope that everyone hears from this conversation. Caroline, thank you so much. Anything else that you want to leave our listeners with on this topic? There are a lot of women who are not mean girls. And there, and I think that it's, I'm not talking about all women. I just, and, and I, this is a very taboo topic. So women often get very angry when I bring this up because they think I'm taking the spotlight off of really real injustices that are out there from men, from other people. But what I want to say is this is the hidden hand that we're not talking about. And it's not everybody, but it's significant enough that I think it's, it's messing around with all of the statistics on why women don't have the power we should have at Mm. this point in our lives. So I just want to say this is something to be looked at, not as it's everybody, but it's people that we all know and we have to do something about it instead of suffering in silence. Absolutely. And you know what? We can only do better when we know better. And now that you have heard this, dear listener, it is up to you. It is up to you to decide what you do with this information, but hopefully you will do one thing. You will amplify the women in your life. Whether you are a woman listening to this, if you are you know, a man listening to this, great. But what I'm saying is the answer to us strengthening all relationships is by being happy for other people's happiness. Caroline, thank you so very much for once again sharing your expertise and all this exciting research. I appreciate your time and for being with us in the details. And thank you and amen to all of that. (laughs) (laughs) This has been In the Details. If you like the show, tell a friend. For more shows like this, go to success.com slash podcast 